Welcome to Between the Shelves, the premier Seva Library podcast. I am your host, Alex, and this week I'm joined by our director, Jen. Hi, Jen. Hi, Alex. And the head of teen services, Marianne. Hi, Alex. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. So we're going to uh, shift gears a little bit for the podcast for this this episode. It's a little bit more serious topic. Banned Books Week starts October 1st. It's the first week of October. And we're going to be talking about banned books a little bit in this episode, how that works, what the challenge process is like, a little bit about Save a Library's policies or libraries in general, how they're affected by it. And we're going to kind of cover all of our bases. So it's going to be a little bit of a more conversational episode. And uh, I think we have two of the best uh, employees in the uh, library to talk about it. Aw, That's very nice of you. Yeah. Thank you. And me. And you. Yes, yeah, so you are included in that circle, yes. So um, I love statistics. I love facts. So I'm going to start with just a couple of facts about banned books, if that's okay. That's a good idea. So 2022 uh, was the highest, uh, was the record for the most reported book challenges in the United States over the previous record of 2021. So last year, there were 2,571 challenged books in libraries. Uh, The previous record was 1,858. So that's quite a jump in one year. And the tracking for challenge books only started in 2003. So, and it's been going up and up every single year, and it seems exponentially almost. So the most common reasons cited for book challenges, according to the ALA, are sexually explicit content, uh, LGBTQ content, or EDI content, which they define as equity, diversity, or inclusion content. So right. kind of a broad spectrum encompassing just, that one. Just to add that, add to that, um, I would say you're right. Sexually explicit is um, offensive language is another profanity, profanity is and yeah. um, that if it's unsuited to a particular age group is another reason why something is challenged. And that can encompass a lot. All of those things could fall under that one particular topic. So where to where do book challenges take place? 48% of them take place in public libraries. 41% take place in school libraries. 10% take place in... Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting my stats wrong. I see 41% in school libraries, 10% in schools. So I guess that's book like for classroom... Curriculum books. Curriculum books, right. yeah. And 1% is in higher education. Okay. So a bulk of the book challenges are happening in school libraries and public libraries. Right. And one more stat I have here is who are the people challenging books? 30% of them are parents. 28% are patrons. So patrons of public libraries. 17% are political or religious groups. 15% are from library boards or school boards. And 3% are from actual librarians or teachers. And, oh, I'm sorry, and there's one more. 3% are elected officials. Right. I have a 1% by students, too. But these are ALA statistics that you're talking about? American Library Association? Yeah. So it might just be a different year of the stats that I'm looking at, but they're all, the numbers are all in that same area. So the the bulk of challenges are initiated by parents, I would say. Yeah. That's the majority. Definitely. And I would say that 28% that are patrons are probably parents of children, but making a request as a patron at a public library. Right, right, right. So, so that's kind of like just a broad overview of, of what the challenging kind of looks like in the United States. So I'm wondering, 
Jen, if you could maybe help us with like some terminology, like what is the difference between a book challenge and a book ban? So for our purposes as librarians and as um, library administrators, we look to ALA um, for guidelines and for definitions of um, this type of, of thing. So according to American Library Association, a challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials based upon the objections of a person or group. The banning is when these materials are actually removed from the material. Challenges do not simply involve a person expressing a point of view, rather they are an attempt to remove the material from the curriculum or the library, therefore restricting access to others. So there are a lot of challenges going on right now. Um, for our purposes, we do not see that the same as being a banned book. So you can, you can come to a library and say, I do not think this book should be in the library for whatever reasons you deem. If we decide to take the book out of the collection, based on those reasons, then that's a banned book. So there is a difference. Um, and it's important to delineate that because in our library there or libraries around here in other states, things are, are different. We don't have, and I'm not talking about school libraries, I'm talking specifically about public libraries. We don't have a tremendous amount of books that actually have been banned from the collection, that they were in the collection once and they were banned because of the reason that somebody challenged it. So that's the difference between a challenge and a ban. So I think one common misconception is that book bans are kind of a, a bottom-up thing from patrons to the library wanting books banned, but that's not always the case. There are top-down bans as well, or challenges as well that come from administration, boards, or even librarians as well. Right. Kind of self um Regulating. Regulating. Yeah, right. exactly. Because I just will say, Marianne, you can probably talk to this point, is that there are sometimes books that um, are reviewed very well from, and we'll talk a little bit more about how we select our materials a little bit later on in the podcast. But there are books that are reviewed well, that there's a patron demand for, that we purchase, and when we actually get the book in hand as librarians, we're not, we can change our mind and say like, you know what, this really should not be in this department. It's, you know, we, and sometimes this has already been checked out or sometimes it's not been checked out, but somewhere along the process. So I just want to tell, I want you to talk to that, like how that, and then I want to tell a story about top down, how where, where it does happen. Yeah, so um, there are there have been many times that sometimes the children's department might order a book and, you know, it's reviewed very well, um, that it's great for a certain age, but maybe they get it and they flip through and they're like, oh, this isn't maybe best for, you know, our patrons here. And they'll say to the teen department, hey, do you want do you want this? This is better for, you know, um, younger teens to older teens. And, and then and then I'll put it in my collection. Um, you know, it goes the other way also. Sometimes I'll buy a book for the teen department, reviewed very well. Um, you know, it, it's really great for a specific age group that would be in my patrons. And, and then I get it, I flip through it, maybe I read it. Um, and, 
I think that maybe it's more for adult. I don't think the teens here. I don't think right. it's appropriate. And so I'll give it to um, our adult department. Um, so it's still accessible. It's still there. Um, you know, we just have to, you know, we go by our reviews that we read and all the professional journals. And then um, we use our own you know, our own criticism of it. If it's um, appropriate, we know our patrons, we know who's using um, our collection, uh, especially when it comes to the kids and the teens. Um, so to that, yes, yeah, we might have to, you know, yeah. deem it not appropriate. Right. Us. And I, you're touching upon an issue about um, whose responsibility is it for what your children or your teens or even adults are reading. Um, it's, Obviously, adults are responsible for their own content. We believe as library professionals that parents are, are responsible for Absolutely. What, monitoring yes. what their children read, um, even older kids, mm-hmm. if they are concerned about it. Um, that does not fall on us because we, our mission is to have something in the library for everyone. So what you think is not right for your, your child could be perfectly um, needed or want it by another child in another family. Right. So I just wanted to tell them a, a quick story that I might have shared before with, not on the podcast, but with you guys, is that um, at a different library, there was a children's book that was on the shelf. It was a holiday book. Um, and a parent asked to speak to me about the book. And I got, to, got the book from down the children's department and I read it, it was a picture book. and. At first glance, I was like, I don't really see what the issue is with the book. I didn't know what her complaint was going to be. So she came in and she's like, this book, it was kind of like the night before Christmas, but it was written about Hanukkah. It was like a Jewish version of that story. And she's like, look at the images of this story. She's like, these are not flattering images of what Jewish people. It was very stereotypical. And I just did not see it on the first view. And once she pointed it out to me, I was like, and she was lovely. She was just like concerned, like, isn't this a little odd? And I was like, you're absolutely right. So we did take the book out of the collection. It was a highly reviewed book. It had gotten good reviews um, from some of the publishers, but for us looking at it with, and I needed a new set of eyes to look at it. So I think that's another misconception about challenges is that we're very hardline and that we're not willing to discuss. We do welcome the conversation, um, even though they're difficult sometimes to have. We are not um, immune to having those conversations about why do you find this book challenging? And then we have a set of criteria that we have to compare it against um, to see if it really hits the mark of to be book banned. So can we talk about that for a minute? That was my the next topic I wanted to cover is you know, what is the actual process of challenging a book? Like, what does a library do once a book is challenged? Okay. When a book is challenged, and I'm, I'm just going to speak for our, our policy because we do have a policy. It's called our material selection policy. And at the end of that policy, it does address if you want to challenge. It might be a good moment for me to say we have never, I've been here five years going on six years, we have never had a patron follow through with the procedure of challenging a book. So we call it reconsideration of materials. So that means we're going to reconsider the item that you are questioning if it should be in our collection or not. So there is a form 
because, you know, we're librarians, we do love forms, and it's called Request for Reconsideration of Materials. So we ask for you to fill out that form, and then that's submitted to the director, myself, and then a committee is formed. And that committee is consist of the assistant director, a librarian who purchased the challenge materials. So if it was a teen book, Marianne would be on that committee. Then we also ask an outside consultant from our library system to be on that committee. And then two department heads that are not in the, the department of the, the challenge. So it's, we try to make it as a diverse group of people. Everybody, everybody on this committee is highly informed about selection of materials and we'll be able to compare it to our policy and our so then we have a best practices for the review committee to take so they will look at obviously they have to read the book which you know not everybody reads the book right marianne like you're you're shaking your head because a lot of times people will go on something they've seen on social Mm -hmm. media or a friend has said i don't like this book because of x y and z but it is important that everybody who's involved in this conversation actually reads the challenge material. Then they review all the materials, they look at the ALA Bill of Rights, then they look at our our policies, they look at the reviews, they look at any other resources that they can gather on this book. Um, There is also something called the Challenged Materials Interpretation of the Library Bill of Rights. So you could Google that to see what that's all about. It's a mouthful. Um, Then, like I said, they review our material, and they also look at professional guides such as the uh, Intellectual Freedom Manual. So this is not something that we take lightly. The committee is will meet and use all of these tools that are within our um, our grasp to decide if the book, or it, you know, it could be a, a movie. It could be, it doesn't have to be a book, right? It could be a CD. It could be anything. So. We keep the personal identify, identification of the committee anonymous. We just really try to keep this as really serious and as um, you know thoughtful as we can. Um, they make a final report with a recommendation, and the recommendation can be one of three things. One is we're keeping the book, we're keeping it in the same spot. We're not there, no action is being going to be taken. They can decide to relocate relocate the material, which Miriam was talking about moving it to a a different section of the library, a different department, or they could decide they're going to remove them. They want the material removed completely. The report may differ depending on the types of resources that's being challenged. It's just like we're talking about. You can also not only challenge a book or a movie, you could also challenge a display or a reading list. There are other things that are not just like the actual book. So then the committee meets with the library director who then um, we'll communicate with the person who originally made the challenge, as well as the Library Board of Trustee. Appeal of the committee's decision can be made in writing to the library director. So the final responsibility after this whole process, if they don't like, the, the challenger does not like the decision, they can appeal it. Then that comes to the director, and that's the final word after the appeal, is that I would kind of do a similar process because I'm not on the committee, the original committee. I would go through the process inside. So it's pretty lengthy and it's thorough for a reason. Um, We don't take it lightly. But I will say we haven't had any challenges. We've had people vocalize 
certain questioning some materials we have, yeah. but nobody's actually gone through these steps since I've been Yeah, here. and I, if you're listening right now and you're saying, okay, librarians are just burying this in bureaucracy to prevent challenges from happening, I do want to say I've had uh, a book and a display of mine challenged within the library, not from a patron from, well, kind of a hybrid. A patron spoke to a librarian, a librarian pushed it up the, uh, the chain a little bit, and they were the book was removed in that case and the display was changed so i don't want to make it sound like from everything you've heard now that like nothing will happen if you have a challenge off and or it will take months and months to happen this has all happened pretty quickly i'm glad you brought that up alex because i should have started with the first thing that should happen is a discussion with the librarian who we were talking about a display librarian who made the display or the librarian who's in charge of the collection and sometimes very often things can kind of be resolved um, at that level, just a conversation. Um, if it gets to the point where you're actually going to fill out and, and um, have a, a material reconsidered, the form itself is one page. It's not a lot of work to fill it out. Um, the work really falls on to the committee and that's purposeful. It's not uh, to make things longer. It's just to be that we're really doing right by the the material and by the patron that we're taking it seriously so but often these types of things can kind of be discussed and a compromise can be made or you know something can just be tweaked a little bit to make it a little bit more appropriate whatever the case may be i wanted to add that for if somebody does challenge something oftentimes how you had said earlier jen that um you know they don't always read the book so that's that's one thing um a lot of the times they don't want to fill out either the paperwork for it either they just want to vocalize it and the end that's it um you know sometimes they don't even want to leave their name right so it's kind of you know you gotta if you want to if you want to go through with it you know you need to follow through with everything and you know it'll really be reconsidered like we will you know take this seriously we will and really calm conversation is much more productive than you know yelling or screaming or um yeah just we're all here for the same purposes to serve our community Mm -hmm. um and there are compromises that have to be made uh, on occasion So. so Another thing I just wanted to add is, you know, the library should be reflecting the community. So if you don't make your voices heard on, on what you want to be included in the collection, um, you, nothing will be changed. So, for instance, we had a patron come in a few weeks ago and voiced his concern over the types of newspapers we had in our collection. So so we, we took that into consideration and we reevaluated what newspapers we were subscribing to. Um, and in this case, I think the patron did have a point that not that our newspapers had any sort of political leaning at all. I don't, I don't agree with that. But we could have had a more a more, wider selection, just more, just, just more. a wider collection, right? And, and we and we fixed it, right? We got we... what I told him was literally you're the first person who's mentioned this. So right. obviously, nothing is going to change unless we hear from our community what how we they would like what they would like to see curated in their collection so and it also can be the opposite could happen is one person comes and why don't you have this is a little opposite than challenging a book but i'm sure we've all experienced this why don't you have this one book Mm -hmm. in your collection i want this book i don't want to wait for it to come from another library so then we it goes all back to our material selections like we only have a certain amount of money for materials and 
if a book is not reviewed well, that's one consideration. But if nobody's requesting it and you're the only person out of all of our, you know, tens of thousands of patrons Mm -hmm. and we have other books that are, you know, 100 to 200 holds on, we have to take that. It does come down to a money issue sometimes. It's not even about the actual content of the book. It's just we'll be able to get it for you, but you're just going to have to wait uh, because we get a bar from the library. Does it make sense for us to purchase this when nobody has shown any interest in this? particular item a little different than a challenge but it sort of falls into the same yeah. conversation i was kind of using that point to illust- to move into the next topic that i wanted to talk about which is how does a librarian curate the collection like how, what is our collection development process like i think that that might just be of interest to any of our listeners or library patrons how do we go about selecting these books in the first place yeah insider baseball it's an exciting yeah. time. <laughs> so Mary, maybe you can talk about how you pick the books that come to your, your shelves. So for the teen department particularly, um, we read all the journals. We see everything, you know, comes through the, the librarians there. We Can you just explain to the listener what a journal is? So there are professional library journals. Um, they are reviewed by other professionals out there, all different librarians around the country. Um, do you have a better? No, explanation? the publishers. It's not. Yeah, it's 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 re- book reviews. Like just, yeah, we're just book reviews. We, you know, we could be talking about different materials, but right now we're just going to talk about the book. So, so the publishers certain, send right. out like their books to you know whoever is reviewing the books um, to the librarians and, and the professionals. Some of the, some of the journals are like Publishers Weekly. Library Journal, Kirkus Reviews, Book Lists. Right. Um, These are peer reviewed considered industry standards tools for yes. librarians to yes. use. So you get a Publishers Weekly on your desk. Publishers or Weekly, there's another one, yes. Right? And then, so we go through, we go through, um, I mean, everybody here, we all go through all the journals, all the library, all the professional staff, we all go through all the journals. Um, we focus, obviously, on our department. So for the teen ones, I will read myself and the other librarian on staff. Angela, we read through all the reviews um, and we go from there. So, yeah, sometimes there's something that is really well reviewed. Maybe it's got a star review and we're like, this is going to be a hot item. This is like, you know, the review will say like for, you know, fans of, you know, this particular series. And it's like, well, this was a hot book for teens. So I want more books like that. So that when they're done with a particular book that they love, I could hand them something like, you know, right. something similar. So that, that you know, even sometimes maybe it's, you know, poorly written and so the review's not the best. You know, I still might buy it if I know that there's going to be a patron that's going to really like this interest, book. Right. That there's high interest in, you know, this particular genre. Um, likewise, you know, if I see a really popular author that's really hot with the teens, maybe it's not the best reviewed book. But I'll buy it because I know that people that love, you know, um, a particular author, like, let's say, John Green, David Leviathan, like, I'm going to buy anything these authors have because they're so popular. And they're popular with adults. So, you know, I do get a lot of adults that come into the teen room. Um, So, uh, you know, we often do buy a lot of the starred review stuff. We also have vendors that come in and, um, you know, sell some stuff. So that's where I get a lot of my nonfiction from because nonfiction is not as reviewed as the fiction books. Um, And I mean, that's generally how we do it in the teen department. Also, you know, 
oftentimes I do have like patrons say, yeah, can you buy this book? And, you know, um, as you know, Jen said already, it does depend on the money. Mm-hmm. So if you catch me in, in, in the beginning of the fiscal year, I'm more likely to buy the book because I'll have the money. Then if you're coming, you know, closer to July, it's unlikely I'm going to buy it. Um, but often I will, I will buy it. If I know that a patron does really want it, and I know they're, you know, a reader, I'm going to probably buy it for them, um, you know. And maybe I'll go to Amazon and I'll buy it there because it's not sold on our particular vendor site. Right. Um, like I just bought a whole bunch of nonfiction books off Amazon because it wasn't sold anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And they are really, really popular nonfiction titles among particularly Saville uh, middle schoolers like it's just really popular so and a lot of other libraries didn't have them so I made sure that um, I could get them for my collection and another part of the process that is not about selecting the books but how important it is for librarians to stay on top of their collections and that includes weeding the collection yeah so if you especially if you're a say a brand new librarian and into a let's say Marian, new department head and you come up in that collection has not really been weeded mm-hmm. it could be several years you yeah. know this is something that should always be ongoing in every but you know it time sometimes it's hard to to get into the stacks and, and weed um, but really important part of getting rid of materials that could be obsolete for a, many, reasons. many it reasons it could just be nobody's taken out in 15 years nobody's or it could be out, nobody's checked it out or that we've learned things changed have changed in the world time, right. and we, or there's a more recent book that is more appropriate or, mm-hmm. or updated. So the weeding is also part of the, the collection development of um, our collections. And particularly for nonfiction, like the weeding is very important because so much of that information does go out of date yeah. or, you know, times change and, you know, things have different names and, you know, we, there's new vocabulary. Right. And um, I always use the example of um, several years ago, like they changed the Dewey number for autism like it was under mental illness for a long time and then it finally got its own number so mm-hmm. it's like you know you want to change all of those books you don't want books that say autism is right. a mental illness when it's not we right. have new you know studies that show that this is something else right. so I, I'll get rid of all of those books and I'll buy all new ones right. and you know it's important it's and important it's now. it's work and uh, obviously our policies are the backbone of all these decisions and they reflect the library's philosophy mm-hmm. and the communities and the mission that we have to serve the community. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, um, we talked about this a little bit in our So You Want to Be a Librarian episodes a couple right. of months back. Um, collection development is actually, there are courses we take in it in, in our master's degrees. This is something that librarians are trained in. Right. So, you know, all the, the policy obviously has a large part of that. Uh, we learn how to collect statistics on our entire collection to see what books are relevant to the community and at least the way I'm developing my nonfiction collection that's a plays a large part in what I'm ordering and this but, working with your colleagues within your department Mary and your department's smaller but you mm-hmm. do have professional librarians on staff and we require all of our librarians to have a master's degree in library science you know, we do hire library trainees who are in school but their position is different than a, um, a full-time or a graduated librarian it has to be ALA accredited school and they also have to hold a New York State Public Librarian professional certificate so anybody who has that criteria um, but ha- maybe graduate maybe graduated after January of 2010 
So those are the newer librarians, even though that's 13 years ago, they must, every five years, you have to complete 60 hours of professional development. And we're, we're big here on professional development at Sayville. Our librarians go to um, all sorts of PD opportunities to learn about this stuff and other stuff. But I just wanted to say, Alex, just to piggyback on you, and I, I went off on a tangent there, but it's also a collective effort with the department. So if you're a brand new librarian, of course we want, you know, collection development is, it's a little bit of a science and a little bit of an art because you can't buy every book. So you have to, you know, you have to learn that and it takes time. So it's important for the department heads and the other librarians to sort of, you know, check over if you built a cart of books and then maybe you're a new librarian, your department head is going to review those books before you they're actually purchased for the library. So it's more than just having the degree. It's also having the experience of of doing it for a while. Um, you get better and better at it. You get it's very nuanced about, and and a lot of times it does come down to money. Well, yeah, and it it's you know you you get your certain budget every year, and you have your our fiscal year July begins in July, and then it goes till June, and you know you if you have a couple of people on staff that are ordering books too, then you got to balance like well, okay, I can't order all these books when right. I know that somebody else is also going to be going through them, then you're just going to blow through your budget real right. quick. And then you can't buy anything that's like published early next year yeah. because you already went through your whole budget. And so it and is I, like a balance. I feel like, I don't know if this is still true because it's been a while since I've been the person going through the journals and ordering, but I know when I was a teen librarian before I was a director and it, it always kind of went in like ebbs and tides. It it wasn't like every month, oh, you're just going to split your month 12 months and spend. You can't. You yeah. can't because sometimes there's just a flourish of yeah. activity and then there's months where there's not a lot going right. on. So it is challenging yeah. to to keep your budget in line with the that, that unpredictability mm-hmm. of, of purchasing books. And then one more thing I just want to say about that we're a public library and we, we should have started with this. We have very different mission and philosophy than school librarians. Um, we're not here to talk about the banning of books in schools um, because that's not our area of expertise. But we are very different uh, mission, and um, we don't we don't work against or have to be considerate of a curriculum per se. I think we've pretty much covered collection development, the process of book challenging. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit more broadly, if we can, about book bans, like what it actually means, kind of philosophically, if we can, for a moment. Um, so what do you what do you think we lose when a book is banned? So why why does why does anyone care if a book is banned? I, I can start if. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, the thing that comes to the to the top of my head is that um, a lot of the books that are challenged and that are banned are um, about, you know, people of color or the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, uh, if you, you're you in a diverse community, you want a diverse collection. You want, um, and speaking as a teen librarian, I want my teens to be represented in the materials that they um, are selecting. So, you know, and, and that goes for anybody's background, really. I mean, you know, you, you, know, you want to see, you know, if you're um, Asian, uh, Pacific, you know, you want to see maybe a character uh, represented that looks like you, that sounds like you, that has the same culture as you. And it goes for, you know, any kind of diversity. It goes for um, any kind of like, you know, we want inclusive books. Um, I want 
um, my teens to come in and see themselves represented and they're gonna they're gonna check out those books they're gonna take them home they're gonna be happy they're gonna come back they're gonna want more um, and so I think that you know that's why it's so important to have these books but then you know those are the books that often upset people and that you know they might not agree with whatever is in that book and so that's why they're going to challenge them right. and they're not seeing you know what we're trying to do yeah i think having a diverse population be able to see themselves in the collection is incredibly important especially for marginalized groups and, and then the flip side of that people, yeah. is have those books available for people like me a straight white male to you can read these books, and even though you don't see yourself represented in them, you can grow empathy towards Definitely the, learning. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's a learning opportunity. Yes. So I would say I really do believe that when somebody is challenging or a book or requesting a book be banned or moved to a different select part of the library, I really do believe that their intention is good. Um, when we're talking about books for children and teens, I do believe that they, and this is why conversation is so important, because uh, there, there's no black, it's not black and white um, in a lot of ways, these conversations, uh, there's a lot of gray area that needs to be discussed. And I do think that they, that a person really truly thinks that this is, but I think just what gets lost in the thread is, and what we go back to over and over, is I totally respect your opinion that you think this book is inappropriate for your teen or your child, but you can't make that decision for another parent or another child. The entire and, community. Right. And so that's really where we fall on that particular conversation. Um, if every single person was against this one book, mm -hmm. uh, maybe we would be having a different conversation, but it often is... I don't want my child exposed to that book. I don't even want them to be able to browse and find it in the library. And that gets a little trickier and it goes back to our beginning of our podcast of it really does fall on the parent to um, handle that with your kids, to yes. have the dialogue, have the conversations about mm -hmm. your expectations, um, go to the libraries with, with them. Yeah. Um, you know, you we are not trying to tell anybody how to parent. Um we're all parents in this room and we all probably have different styles and the way uh, we've handled our children and uh, we're not looking to do that. We're just responding to the demand and the the uh, the need in our community for books and some of them you might agree with and some of you not. And you know, I know it sounds easy just to say, oh, well just don't take it out. But I, I hear you when you're saying, well, if they're exposed to it and, and all their friends are reading it and they're getting all of this knowledge that I don't think they're ready for or I don't, believe in um that again it just falls back to the parent right it's right the because it's not yeah. a universal it's not a universal agreement between mm -hmm. everyone it you know so it, it is and that's why i wish the conversations could be um more civil and more um yeah. you know the compromise of understanding what why and yeah. sometimes it's hard to have that but i think that's what we need to do and keep so i listened to a podcast this morning before i came in on um, just talking one more thing that was interesting because this it was an author and she was she was saying oh you know my book was banned recently and 
people are saying, oh, well, now you're going to, it's going to be a bestseller because it's banned and people are going to want to find it and they want to use it. But that's not really what happens. That might happen with some books that, you know, people are going to get the books no matter what. But most books are just taken out of the collection that are truly banned. And that's it. Nobody is ever exposed to it because they don't have the big publishing name behind them or they don't have the, their name is not that big and they're, they're just out. So it, that's a misconception that, oh, as soon as a book is banned, yeah. We're, if we're talking about a book series like Harry Potter, it probably helped sales. I don't know. It was big sales no matter what. Mm-hmm. But most books who are, that are actually removed, um, sadly, are, are just, they're just gone. Yeah. For every 10 books that are banned, there's one like All Boys Aren't Blue or something that who's the author's able to capitalize on the publicity and oh, shoot their book up the right, bestseller right. list. But, but that's again, not that's the that's norm. the that's yeah. not the norm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if I could just go back to Jen's point when she was saying that ultimately it does fall to the parent's decision about, you know, what their child is reading. I, I did actually have I had a parent. Um, within this past year who came in with, you know, their three young teens and he um, or she had their child uh, pick out a bunch of books and the parents sat there and literally flipped through everything. And most of them were graphic novels. So, you know, they're eyeballing it. Um, And, you know, they said no to pretty much all the books. And at first I got like really upset, like this kid is going home with like nothing. And Mm -hmm. that makes me sad. But then I was like, you know what? No, it is the parent that mm-hmm. he, the, this parent did not come over. They did not say this should not be, you know, in the teen department. They made that final choice that this was not appropriate right. for my child. And, and that's, that's, their that's parent- how it should be. Right. Yes. That's their parenting yeah. responsibility and the way that they view it. Yeah. I was pretty strict when my son was a teenager. Um, it was helpful because I'm a librarian and I was a teen librarian, so I was very familiar with the literature. But I would often, if he was reading a book, I was reading it at the same time. Yeah. Or if not, I would read it before. Mm-hmm. Um, because honestly, just on, it's a great way to communicate with your kids. Yeah. It's just being, you know, if they're in a book and you're in the same book, it's the easiest conversation to talk about is somebody else's life mm-hmm. that's happening in the book. I have um, my son right now who is young and he loves graphic novels and, you know, he was reading a series this entire summer that was an adult graphic novel and he was devouring them. So, Mm -hmm. and I, I'll I'll, I'll let him read whatever he wants because I was raised like that. Right. So, um, you know, every now and again, I I get, mom, what does, uh, what does consummate mean? Mm -hmm. You know, and so we have this very open conversation about, you know, he's in um, sixth grade now. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it happened this summer. So he's asking me questions and I'm talking to him about it and you know that's that's your that's what style, that's right? what my style yeah. and that's what I want him right. to do. And so at the end of the day though we don't bring our parenting styles to the workplace. Right. Um so we just talked about how we handle different differently our our kids reading our teen our preteen readings uh habits but at the end of the day um we're very we can leave that all at the door. We know as librarians we it's it's been a challenging time for librarians to feeling that they needed to need to defend their um, ability and their knowledge and their authority in making these decisions and it's not even about making decisions just being having a process in place and talking about the books i think that's a nice place to end it Mm -hmm. um i'll just mention if you are curious about what the most banned books are currently. The ALA has a list of the top 13 banned books in the country right now, which I'll put a link to in our show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I was surprised to learn that I hadn't read most of them. Most of what I thought were the banned books are mostly classics. Um, So I, this past couple of weeks, I've been trying to check off as many as I could, and I got through about half of them. Um, So I'm pretty... Out of how many? 13. 13? Oh, that is good. They're all pretty short. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly 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 teen teen books. books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I think a good, you know, that's a... A perfect thing for a librarian or anybody. You no, know, I'm going to take this list and I'm going to see really what it. Because really, at the end of the day, it's about knowledge and understanding of the process and just really asking us questions about it. Where we're here to talk about all of this because we are we really care what the community wants and needs. So please take a time to look at those websites that you're going to put up on the mm-hmm. podcast page, some resources and some, you might, it might be something you'd be surprised to learn about censorship and about uh, the way public libraries do their collection development compared to school libraries and academic libraries. Um, yeah, it's a lot to learn. And I think that the more educated you are on this stuff, the, the easier these conversations become. I think that's all we have for this episode. Jen, Marianne, thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having us, Alex. All right. And I just want to make a quick note. This episode um, is going to be coming out the first week of August. I mean, sorry, October. October. Thank you. In uh, Band Book Week. But next month, November 4th, is the Sable Fan Fest. Yes. I'm going to be saying this every episode this month. Plug it. Saturday, November 4th, 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. We have food trucks, costume contests. Star Wars characters are going to be here. We have 25 or 26 vendors booked at this point. That's amazing. Arts and crafts, family activities. A giant a, band playing. A, a marching band music. is going to be playing. Uh, yeah, all your favorite theme songs. Oh, uh, the uh, the big van, the big um, bus from SCLS will yes, be here. The uh, the video bus. games. Yeah. I've got uh, trivia happening. I'm sure the popcorn machine will be yeah. in. Yeah. Well, they're going to smell it when they walk so in. Popcorn. <laughs> Free but popcorn the and tea. Great. Uh, yes. So come on. I can't wait to get my bacon yeah. cheese my sandwich. And, yes. Yeah. That yeah. was really good last time. Yeah. Yes. So definitely come out for that. Yes. Uh, we will all be there. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.